eyes towards Jesus as we look into his word. And let me read our text before we begin our sermon. It's from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then pour wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The title of the message today is the first manifestation of his glory. It is by grace that we are able to see the glory of God. There are many who saw miracles and did not believe. It's simply by the grace of God, as the Spirit of God opens our eyes, that we are enabled to see the glory of God. And in the seeing of the glory of God, we become fully appreciative of his grace. So his glory and his grace go hand in hand, each pointing and enabling the other. Just a few uh, scripture texts here to preface by way of introduction our message today. We've been through them before, but... There is the physical context that we've read about. There's Cana, there's Mary, there are the disciples, there's Jesus, there's the, there are the guests, there's the master, and there is the bridegroom, and we can be assured there was the bride there and her family and his family, all of the company that would have been there. But then there's also a spiritual context, the purpose and the reason for the writing, and we've been through this many times. But John has already, by way of preface, introduced to us uh, in John 1.14, we read, to these, these ideas. And the Word, of course, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, even in a wedding feast. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as I've been reminded this week, he is all grace and he is all truth. Then from John 2, 11, it says, and the first of his, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. Returning to kind of the theme or the reason or the purpose of the book, we look again at John 20, verse 30 through 31. John the Apostle, some years after these events, writes, uh, and he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, and <clears throat> which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might or you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Then, in that same chapter, we can read, and I think this is pertinent and applies to us. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God, after seeing, visually seeing, and been reminded of his statement, I won't believe until I put my hands, I touch him, and I feel him, and I see, and I know this one who was dead is raised. And Jesus said to him, have you believed and his reply when he saw him is, my God, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now the reference here is to physical sight, to laying their eyes. And I've heard, had so many people over the years, oh, if I could see Jesus, my faith would be so great. We see brothers and sisters by the wonder of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that as we read the living word of God he opens the eyes of our hearts that we might by faith look into the face of Jesus and see the glory of God. Following with John's stated purpose together we might see Jesus as both Messiah and God and through many signs and wonders and declarations through the book of John he is going to present himself as the Messiah and the Son of God. Borrowing again from John 1.14, we might say, He who became flesh in the person of God, the Holy Spirit now dwells in us and in our midst, enlightening our eyes and our hearts this morning that we may see his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's, that's the reason we've gathered this morning. Or that should be the reason we've gathered this morning. Into God's place, appointed place with God's appointed people. That we might this morning together through the preaching and the hearing of the word. See the glory of God in the face of Jesus. For what purpose? That we'll have a better week? Maybe not a flat tire on the way home? No, that we might worship him. That our hearts might be drawn to see the eternal God high and lifted up and that our hearts might be drawn by that Holy Spirit to worship him in spirit and truth. Make a note that the glory of God that we see now is the glory of his grace and truth, because he is grace and truth. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will present, proclaim my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy. There we have grace. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Beloved, if you will now see this glass of water, this is not going to turn into wine. And if you have an expectation that the roof is going to be parted and somehow we're going to look up with physical eyes and into heaven, that's just not going to happen. 
But by his grace, you can see the glory of Christ displayed in our text. That's the reason it was recorded. That was the reason it was written, as a sign to who Jesus was and what he came to do. We may not see a sign with our physical eyes, but the purpose of the signs goes beyond those immediate readers. It extends to us, and by the work of the Spirit this morning, we, beloved, might see Jesus Christ and in him see God our Father. We might in our hearts, even as we have prayed together, see the glory of God, unlike Herod who asked Jesus to perform a miracle, perhaps out of curiosity, or perhaps out of a desire to be entertained. No, we ask that in seeing we might be led to worship him and to enjoy by faith his presence with us this morning, perhaps without even knowing it or, or being conscious of it, or perhaps this morning if he was so, so desires that we might have a sense of his presence and power. And then that power would be that which would uh, drive us forward into our worship. We will look at the turning of water into wine. We acknowledge it manifests his power. First of all, it manifests his power over the created order. You remember from the very first verses that he was in the beginning and all things were made by him. And yet it's not in the power of God that we're going to look for the glory of God or in the power of Jesus this morning, though it's demonstrated there. But I hope to show you that it's through his grace and his, through his perfections that the signs point beyond that immediate miracle to the work of Christ and what he was going to do. We will look at the glory of Jesus as the perfect son. Hopefully we will see his glory as the perfect purifier. And then finally, we will look at the glory of Jesus as the perfect provider. The glory of Jesus as the perfect son. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, Jesus could give us just principles and facts. The word could be presented that way, but God has chosen to give us stories, illustrations uh, that we can identify with. I think everyone here has probably been to a wedding. You've probably been somewhere when something awkward happens, when, when the, there wasn't enough food or somebody shows up that, was, that you didn't expect and there's not enough to give them. So we learn and we can see uh, through the experiences of others, how God worked in their lives and how he spoke to them, and it's been preserved, and this is our expectation this morning. John introduces his story by marking time, location, and a partial list of participants. As we have mentioned before, all these basic facts are historical or biographical in nature. This is a real wedding. This is in a real place and a real time. This is not just a parable. But it, though there is parabolic in meaning within this real story, it's not an allegory. 
This is a real set of events with real people gathered in a real place for a real wedding where a real miracle was performed. Yet the physical elements point to something more. They point beyond the immediate to something future. Certainly the transformation of water into wine as a sign points, as we said, to the glory of Christ. For verse 11 clearly states this, the first of his signs, the changing of the water into wine, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and we might say in that miracle, <clears throat> and the disciples saw it and they believed. So again, we read on the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding and his disciples. So what facts do we know from these verses? Why are these facts which may seem incidental, important. First of all, we've already mentioned the physical nature of the meaning. Uh, he, he uses time to point out the third day, to point out the chronology, things that we're familiar with in our physical comings and goings each day. Cana of Galilee speaks to the geography. A wedding speaks to the occasion. The depletion of wine speaks to a dilemma something that is a problem, something that needs to be dissolved. So what are the significance of the fact? We would simply repeat that these are, represent actual events. Then there's a summary of the relationships. There's a relationship between Jesus and his mother Mary. That has been a 30-year relationship. We don't know of all the details, though some things we do know. Uh, we know even before his birth, uh, the announcement of his birth, the supernatural uh, announcement of his birth, and, and Mary's response to that. Then there's the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. The significance we will see in relationship to Mary, because there's a transition, and I'll probably use that word more than once, transition taking place here. But the disciples are mentioned, I believe, because they would be, they were eyewitnesses. And if you flip forward to chapter 17, you know when Jesus prays for the church. He prays not for the world, but for those who would believe the testimony of these disciples. So it's significant that the disciples are mentioned here. Then the significance of the relationship, as we just mentioned, the disciples as eyewitnesses. Though that at this time they did not understand everything that was going on, they would at some point in time, and again we'll repeat this, they did look back after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit reminded and brought things to their remembrance. And then his teaching and the events took on and fleshed out this, their significance. Then there's a dialogue. Uh, Mary says they have no wine, and then Jesus replies, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. The significance of this initial dialogue, I would suggest to you, is that uh, Mary is primarily concerned, and rightly so, uh, with the depletion of wine. As we get to the surge section, we'll look at the wedding itself and why the 
running out of wine was such a, uh, uh, it was so uh, cataclysmic, maybe that's a, big, that's a big word to describe, but it was a real problem within the culture and within the wedding feast itself. Mary understood the ramifications and she turned to the one that she had perhaps turned to in the past. It's been suggested that at this time Joseph, because he's not mentioned here, has passed away. And in the interim, we know from the culture that Jesus, as the firstborn, would have taken on the responsibility of the household. And it's not hard to imagine, or it's not beyond, it's not simply imagination to assume that Jesus uh, was her strength, and, uh, and she turned to him for many things, big and small. And I would say that she found in him one that she could trust, that one she could turn, into, turn to. There's no record of or indication that Jesus had worked any miracles. There's literature that said he healed a broken bird as a little boy and there are all kinds of things, but they're not found in the word of God. And the things that are recorded here are recorded that we might believe that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. So she uh, turns to him and Jesus does something perhaps shocking uh, there's no reason to believe that up until this time that he had ever addressed his mother as woman. It's not derogatory. It's not uh, a slight, as we will see. He was not trying to embarrass her, but it had to have been shocking. Jesus uses the word woman in other occasions, and uh, the woman at the well, he addresses her as woman. So it's, it's not derogatory or demeaning any way. It's perhaps uh, for us, it, well, I think in that culture, it was probably shocking as well. Obviously, there was nothing disrespectful because Jesus was perfect in all of his ways. It was to demonstrate, I believe, and this is where our text turns, it was to demonstrate that as his mother, she had no special privilege. She had to come to him as any other woman would come to him. Now, there is the familiarity of a mother to a son, but we're seeing a transition where the emphasis is not on his son relationship with his mother, but his relation as a son to his father. In the context of the following words of Jesus, they give reason why. He says, woman, what does this or these things have to do with me? Different translations read it different ways, but what we have here is her concern versus his concern, and we know what his concern is, and perhaps, and I would believe that this is the first time he has ever said these words to her, my hour has not yet come. He wants her to understand two things, that fixing the temporal issues of life is not his primary business or work. So oftentimes in our prayer life and our concerns, and it's, it's only natural, the physical things of life, the immediate things of life are our greatest concern and probably, if the truth in my own life, these would be the things that we pray for with more intensity. But there are things that are more important. What if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? Uh, this life is but uh, a breath, a, a shadow, and, and it's gone. Eternity 
is what matters. And he's going to demonstrate this, I think, to her. In Luke 8, 19 through 21, we read this. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God. Again, in chapter 11 of Luke, it says, and he said these, and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Every human being, mother, brother, friend, Israelite, Jew, Gentile, uh, Scythian, barbarian, free, bond, we come to Jesus Christ as broken sinners in need of a Savior. And Mary understood this. She didn't take this as a slight. She didn't exalt herself. John the Baptist, uh, some of his last words are, he must increase that I might decrease. He said, we rejoice when the bridegroom cometh. Uh, he took joy in the fact that his Savior, the bridegroom, was present. In Luke 24, 51, oh, excuse me, he knows that the wine has run out. He knew before the wine ran out that the wine was going to run out. Okay? But what he, and he also knows what he intends to do about it. And what he intends to do about it is not dependent upon someone asking him to do something about it. They did. These are the events. But he designed and purposed to use this opportunity to reveal himself and his purpose for coming into the earth. He just simply said, my hour has not yet come. It's doubtful that she fully understood what that meant or that his disciples understood that, but they would come to know. Though she might not have fully understood the exchange, it may have prompted, and I say may, allow me some speculation and deviation from the text, but I think it has bearing. She may have looked back to another incident, and as soon as I mention it, your mind will go there. His parents took Jesus as a 12-year-old to, to Jerusalem, to the temple for the Passover. And if you remember the story after... After a period of time, his parents packed up and they left. And they were three days into the journey before they realized that Jesus was not there. And so concerned, after searching, they go back to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. And where do they find him? They find him in the temple. And there he is sitting with the scholars. And they're astounded at his wisdom and his knowledge. And, of course, they didn't know what he knew. And what he knew... It's who he was and why he had come into the world. And so they admonished him. And didn't you know that we were, we were desperate to find you? And he says, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? In today's text, Jesus says, my hour has not come. But in the Luke passage we just read, the emphasis could be placed on the father's business. The hour that had not come for him was the father's business, was the son's business, and was the Holy Spirit's business. Combining the two, we might say the appointed hour, again, was the father's business. 
Tying it all together, it was the Father's business, His hour, and not the immediate hour that was the ultimate concern for Jesus at this time. I like the way sometimes, not all the time, but the way Spurgeon says things. Quoting Spurgeon, Though Jesus Christ came to accomplish our redemption, came to set us as a perfect example, and to establish a way of salvation, yet he came not on his own business, but upon the Father's business. His Father taking as much interest in salvation of men as even he himself did. The great heart of the Father being as full of love as the bleeding heart of the Son, in the mind of the firstborn, first person of the Trinity, Trinity being as tenderly affected towards his chosen as even in the mind of Christ, so our substitute, our surety, and our all is about his Father's business. Throughout the Gospel of John, John will make this clear, or Jesus will make this clear. John simply records his word in John 8, 28. He says, I do nothing on my own authority, Jesus speaking here, but speak just as the Father has taught me. John 5, 17 and 19. My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does does likewise. And finally, in chapter 12, we read, Jesus will proclaim, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Jesus' death and his dying, the glory and the majesty of it is that he would bring many sons and daughters into the kingdom. He came because it was the Father's will that you and I spend eternity with he and the Son and the Holy Spirit in glorious bliss. These are not just platitudes. This is the reality in which we should live. Our minds should think about from day to day, moment to moment, in every trial and tribulation, that the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth loves us and gave his Son for us. And the Son, in all obedience and love for the Father, came and died for us. It is in his perfections, excuse me, earlier when John proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was, he was pointing to Jesus, the perfect son. It is in his perfection as a son that he is qualified to, <clears throat> to be the perfect lamb who through his shed blood can purify from sin, impute to us the perfect righteousness of his life lived, which points us to the next point. We see in him the glory of the perfect purifier. So because of time, I'm going to... Set these notes here. If I get out in the wheel, you just bring me back. Raise your hand. Jesus could have spoken or thought or whatever he wanted to do that all of the empty glasses be filled with wine. Or he could have taken one wine glass and like in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, the widow who kept pouring oil out and pouring oil out. He could have taken the, perhaps the bridegroom's cup and he could have said, fill it with water and turned it to the wine, and then poured it out among all the guests. Just kept pouring, kept pouring, and kept pouring. But the writer says that there were six water pots 
there, big water pots. And they for, were for ritual, emphasize that word, they were for ritual cleansing and for purification. Just like the blood of goats and, pull, and, and bulls and all of the sacrifices cannot atone for sin, they cannot remove sin, only the one perfect sacrifice, neither could all of the water that ever flowed in Israel wash away and purify sins. They pointed to, and I believe that Jesus was using these water pots, these bathtubs, if you would, not made for drinking. He was using these as a sign of his glory as the perfect once-for-all purifier. I will read from my notes here. Therefore, brothers, Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, make it personal, brothers and sisters. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The, if you read back in Hebrews, the, the priests didn't have confidence. Year after year after year after year, day after day after day, they, because the sacrifices were not sufficient. But he says, but we, you, can enter with confidence into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, through his body, through his blood and through his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Returning to the story, we read that Jesus told his servants who filled the jar to take some of it to the master so that he might drink it. Water in the jugs accomplished nothing. It was created and turned into wine that we might drink. In chapter 6, he will say, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can't have a part of me. This is necessary that we accept, that we believe, that we uh, embrace, that we trust, that all of these things through the power of the Holy Spirit in our Lord and Savior and his work for us. It should be noticed that, this, that the... Uh, the master didn't know the source of the wine, but the servants did. You can, there are a lot of things here. Just go home and study it and meditate it, and you're going to find many avenues in which you can look. Why do the servants only? That's something to explore, but they didn't. But when the uh, master took it to the bridegroom, he drank of it, and uh, he said, you've saved the best to last. Now, I don't... There are many ways this, this, this story can be told. One is all about the wedding and our culture and weddings in our culture. And the whole story is designed to, to put a sanction on marriage. And marriage is to be sanctioned. It's to be promoted. But here is to show the signs of the glorious Christ. And though the bridegroom did not understand, he received glory for something that he didn't accomplish. That leads us to the next thing, the perfect, the glory of the perfect provider, the perfect bridegroom. Now, in that culture and in that time, uh, weddings were done a little bit different. The groom would go and he would take a dowry, a sum of money or a letter of intent, whatever, to the bride. And, and, and the marriage 
was inaugurated then. They were considered husband and wife, though the marriage was not consummated. They did not live together. And then he would go back to his father's home, a home perhaps that had many generations in it, perhaps uh, had been lived in for centuries. Maybe the plot of land was the inheritance that they received at the conquest. There's a, there's a matter of inheritance and the longevity and, and all of this in this and provision. And so he would go to his father's house and more than likely he would add own. So this bridegroom in that story may and could well have said to his bride, after, he says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to go to my father's house. There are many rooms there, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, there are already other people, there, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to receive you unto myself, and we'll live together forever. The groom in this story was demonstrating, the other responsibility was not to provide just a house, but he was responsible for the total wedding, for the food, the entertainment, and the wine. And what this groom proved is he wasn't capable. It was to demonstrate that I can provide for your needs, and he, he didn't do it. But at this wedding was the perfect provider, the perfect groom, and he did what this man could not do. It is into this setting that the true and perfect bridegroom of the church steps in. Though in only a <clears throat> that uh, though to only a few at first, he declared not only his glory as the perfect son, his glory as a perfect provider, but uh, purifier, but his glory as a perfect bridegroom and provider. Think again of the solemn words that Joseph spoke to his mother. First as a child, I must be about my father's business, and now at the beginning of his ministry, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was fully aware of all that the father had sent him to do, and to the many steps from that moment until that hour, he would he would, he would go through. But he could look beyond the hour of his death to his resurrection, to his ascension, to his place at the right hand of the Father, to his return to earth to receive his bride to himself. He could look to the wedding feast of the Lamb where the consummation will take place, where we will be with him forever. So, O Bride of Christ, delight this morning in the glorious, perfect Son of God, who has perfectly obeyed the Father, has accomplished His will. Glory and delight in Him, who, as your glorious and perfect purifier, has made you perfectly clean. And finally, may we find our joy and delight in the in the delights in, of his love. May we find rest and security in the perfections of his inexhaustible provisions of which there is no end. For he loves us and he gave himself for us that he might present us, that he might sanctify us and present us to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any other thing. 
Recognize and worship the gift of our loving Heavenly Father. As you hear this from Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Now, as I prepared, and I've left a lot out, probably wasn't good, but, but this hymn came to mind. It's one of my favorite, favorite hymns by Ann Cousin, and this is just one verse out of it. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we pray that you would reveal yourself in any way you see fit, that even now that we might be led to worship you, not only in this moment, but as we leave this place and throughout this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.